everyone. Tea for everyone? Yeah. Tea party. Should we rename our site the Tea Party? Is that what you said? <laughs> no, no. That's going to recall. Uh, they're they're going to think we're some alt-right organization. We're not? Tea time. <laughs> I feel like we're an alternative to the right, don't you? Good morning, Calvin. Good morning. So we decided that we're an alt-right podcast. Was that right? No. We're, <laughs> we're an alternative to the right, is what you're what we were saying <laughs> we're an alternative to the conservative bastards you, I, on the media look look a guy watches a couple documentaries on the nazis and all of a sudden he's being labeled as a member of the alt-right i, I <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to see I'm putting, what you're putting that today. behind me i swear <laughs> i don't know if you can put it behind you if it's uh, if it comes up every week i feel like it's a it's part of you now um uh, Get really divorced. I'm trying. I'm I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm trying to to relabel myself here. I'm trying to to rebrand and move on, but you won't let me. <laughs> uh, speaking of not letting yourself into festivals, no. Uh, there's a. Uh, I'm doing two festivals, which is about the maddest thing I've ever tried to do for the website. Uh, one is a nightmare to cover alone. So I'm doing South by, which will come up next week, uh, and one of my favorites, a local favorite. Uh, Nordic Lights Film Festival, which highlights all of the Nordic countries. You have like the the Sami regions and um, Denmark and Norway, Iceland, Sweden, all of that good stuff, uh, Finland. And there's so many interesting films that you would never get to see on a release calendar. Uh, these will never make it like in a theater out here. And I mean, they probably won't anyway, because nothing is. But um, I think there's a lot of joy in looking in like this niche that would never come up otherwise that nobody in the u.s is really covering um i like to have more exclusive entry into like uh like woman at war was something i celebrated really early which is now like the highest rated nordic movie of the last 10 years right like there's there's some good value in getting into this festival uh the year after i did the last one i i did my wedding at their museum you were there for that uh i was yeah yes. <laughs> yeah beautiful uh nordic was- museum yeah, it was a beautiful place, fantastic wedding as well. Uh, I can only imagine what it's like to actually go and, and see the films there as well. Actually, they're all at like SIF normally <laughs> uh, because there's not really a great screening room. I think they might do one or two there, but uh, um, it, it's mostly at the SIF Uptown and the SIF Egyptian Cinema in Capil. So uh, they kind of divide it out through the city and use those outlets to better show the films. Makes um, sense. But I'm okay with just watching them from home. Uh, we'll have our honeymoon of the wedding this coming weekend and uh, staying in a place downtown. Uh, it's nice to have family where you just have to pay like a cleaning fee for somewhere and you could have like a view of the city. And it's nice to get away with that kind of thing. So I'll be watching a lot of them there, but I'm really looking forward to that coverage and maybe writing like a think piece about the wedding and what that festival really means to me. I, I would... Love to read that. Certainly, your your uh, personal anecdotal pieces are always a joy, as we kind of talked about last week with the the Ray review and stuff. So something like that in that perspective, I think, would be much appreciated. Certainly, and that and that personal connection that the place has to to your own life, and you know, definitely a connection you feel every time you return to the festival. I think is is very valuable. Yeah, and my my wife's mom's from Denmark, so she has like a very direct connection there, and um. And I have like the Danish Swedish blood too, so uh, both of us have a, a lot of connection to like this material and this culture. So um, I think 
lately there's been a lot of problems with like a Nordic symbols and looking at like the alt-right as we were talking about. Uh, I think they've been adopting a lot of the white culture, so well, to speak. Wasn't, wasn't it the, uh, the, the stage at the, uh, the Republican national convention, wasn't that the, uh, you know, the, the rune shape that was kind of yeah. like a adopted by the Nazis thing. Well, because uh, they, that was stuff I was seeing, I don't know. <laughs> They got tired of the swastika, right? Because people look at that and they're like, oh, their message must be bad and like Hitler. So they took another one and now they're, they're dirtying another uh, symbol. Now, I will say that's supposedly the case. I haven't looked to actually like, a, you know, confirm if that is, you know, a, a thing within the Nazis or whatnot. It could be very sensationalized and stuff. And, you know, it's hard to say how much is intentional and like, like, because I could see that also being unintentional, not that I'm sympathizing here right but uh it doesn't look good either way and, and like you know a pattern of things like it's it's one thing if it happens like once accidentally but this continued association with uh all of this nazi imagery it's like hmm, you know sometimes uh, an, an assumption isn't too much of a stretch then yeah um maybe we could pull away from that we are the alternative to the right <laughs> the twin geeks that's our new headline isn't that just left isn't isn't left alternative to the right that's right alt right um <laughs> so what are we covering there was a groundhog day movie that you guilted me into watching <laughs> there there was uh, i was hoping to get a review out of it but it doesn't <laughs> sound like it was worth covering in print so uh I, i'll at least get to hear about it here uh yeah this is this is one that flew under your radar apparently which was shocking when when i told it to you about it because uh i i just happened to come across it because amazon plays ads for its <laughs> movies before other streaming titles because you know i just i, I watch the old stuff that Amazon has. And I was like, yeah. Oh, it's a groundhog day movie. Why isn't Calvin covered this yet? <laughs> I feel like reviewing it would be like advocating against my own interests. I'll probably cover the ones I like, but there's a lot of groundhog day movies. I pass over, honestly, like naked on Netflix a couple of years ago. This one, see a lot too. Um, <laughs> two whole groundhogs that I've uh, missed. Um, God, it's such a twee thing. It, it feels like it had to be like a John Green book, but the dialogue's not that well written. Um, well, uh, what was it, the name of it again? I've already forgotten, even though you told me again before the, the episode, and I was the, the one who told you about it. The map of tiny perfect things. So every day Kyle yes. Allen's character wakes up and he maps out everything he's experienced in his uh, Groundhog Day chain. Uh, him going to his friend's house and asking him about Groundhog Day, like Happy Death Day, it has to mention that movie in it but it, it doesn't do it as successfully. Um, there's a, he's kind of fed up with his Groundhog Day routine by the time the movie starts. It's kind of like um, Palm Springs in that sense where it just begins at the point where he's already fed up. Like it, it knows that we don't need that, that early um, buildup that, that we had in the Bill Murray movie. We didn't need to follow that character because we've already done that so many times. So, uh, it, it needs very little setup and it's not very interested in its own mechanics. Um, it's mostly interested in this twee romance, uh, which doesn't really lift off anywhere. Um, uh, Catherine Newton plays the, the lady of interest here. It, he just follows her around and just does things to try to please her. And I don't know. I feel like if I were in a loop, eventually, you know, maybe of course you'd, want to try to date someone or you'd want to try something new but uh i feel like you after enough days you your interests would pass and you'd be trying to do more important things um yeah i, I do have to say monogamy doesn't sound like the kind of thing you want to aim for if you're stuck in a time loop yeah because you'd experience the same person the same way every day i mean uh, 
the the rules the rules are off at that point right you know you can you can get away with anything and then it's you know an entirely new day so feel free to experiment if you're ever stuck in a time loop like that i, right. I have to say uh looking at the film as well when you when you called it kind of like a knockoff john green novel or whatever uh it, it looks like that very much from the kind of like reachingly like pretentious title there to the uh the the, the style of it with the um the, like the hand drawn like lettering oh, yeah. and stuff and all that it lo- looks very much like that so it's like <laughs> 10 years late uh <laughs> oh of course and it, and like the tweeness of like a guy being stuck in a time loop and every morning drawing like a perfectly illustrated little map like it's so precious like i think after enough days you'd stop perfectly illustrating a map and it would just be like a, a slovenly mess of shapes and figures. Kinda, and why would you need to draw it, it every like day? It's like the, the opposite of Groundhog Day in many ways, which is like rife with cynicism. In it is. Certain points. You know, there's, there's a whole montage of him killing himself in, in, yeah. in Groundhog Day, and I'm sure that you don't get anything here. Unfortunately not. Just like... <laughs> <laughs> By the end, I wish I did. I wanted to watch this guy jump off a clock tower or something. <sighs> It's just it's not dead. that pleasing. I mean, if you want a good John Green adaptation, um, Looking for Alaska on Hulu was utterly fantastic a couple of years ago, surprisingly. Um, really good adaptation of the one John Green I really connected. I also like Turtles All the Way Down, but I don't know if that's adapted yet. So There's at least two John Greens I like, but this imitation John Green just isn't going to do it for me. I don't like Twee in general and this kind of like young comedy. Um, it takes a lot for me not to like a, a Groundhog Day, and I think you know that. Yeah, definitely. You are uh, overly advocating for, for Groundhog Day <laughs> movies. <laughs> so the fact that this one came along and made a negative impression on you is uh, is regrettable, and I feel somewhat responsible for pressuring <laughs> you into to doing it. <laughs> like he, he does everything to impress her. In the gymnasium of the school, he's like designed a she wants to be an astronaut. So he's designed like a moon landing with like the art department of the school. It's, it's the most tweeble shit I've ever seen. I, I don't know. I, I can't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> this, you know, I, I think I've learned a good lesson here because uh, if it was good, it could have been a fatal mistake and we could have been covering that on the podcast this week. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, Actually, in order to avoid another Happy Death Day scenario, I'm going to act like I've never heard of any other Groundhog Day-like movies I've come across. Uh, I should not be encouraging this. I'm now realizing, and uh, that a... recommendation was a was a huge mistake on my end. <laughs> Would you say the podcast is beginning to feel like Groundhog Day for you? So sometimes I think the the pandemic uh, certainly amplifies that feeling, but. Uh, I, I generally we keep enough variety here that it's not like the same thing every time you know we talked about nomadland last week and that was right. definitely a step out of what i usually cover if it was like the fifth orson, well- orson wells film then yeah maybe <laughs> if he made a groundhog day i would have been all over it the trial is kind of like groundhog day isn't it oh really um... uh i mean it n- probably not like that's that's probably a gross <laughs> exaggeration but like it you know it's it's a uh, you know kind of it's kafka qualities i think M- makes me feel a little groundhog dayish the kind of the the bewilderment of it all that's a very kafka-esque comparison you made <laughs> um would you like would you like to do a documentary or coming to america first uh, uh, well i have two documentaries this okay, week I'll, actually i could do so. this first if you or should you want to go, then I'll go, then you go? Sure, you sure. Okay. okay, so uh, 
awkwardly transitioning into David's documentary discourse. <laughs> uh, I have, I have uh, two documentaries this week, actually. Uh, one of them, I just, I, I didn't intend to watch another one this week until this morning, which I started, which is a little more relevant to what we're talking about today. But uh, yesterday when I got off of work, uh, I just wanted to put something on and potentially like uh, just kind of relax and fall asleep to after a long day of work. And, and I pulled up Canopy where I watch a lot of my documentaries from. And there'd been one that's just been like popping up uh, at the front of it uh, all the time, you know, very good advertisement. They just put it front. And so I'm like, fine, whatever. I'll watch this uh, thing that that's been obviously screaming at me to watch it for, for a while now. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, it's called unfit. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> the, the psychology of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I posted my letterbox when that came out. Um, I said I was embargoed from saying whether or not he was fit to be president. Some of my best work on the letterbox. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I didn't really intend to watch all of it. I just wanted to put something on that I had, like, tepid interest in, because usually I'll <laughs> fall asleep uh, yeah. when watching something when I get home. So you put on uh, but, uh, you know, I found it... Yeah. Well, as a documentary, I found it good enough, like decent enough structurally uh, to, to, to be recommendable, uh, not in the sense that it's going to like outright answer the, the question kind of that it centrally posits or that it's going to convince anyone who's not already in agreement with everything there. I, I think it's very biased for sure. And it's not uh, it's not welcoming to to conversation necessarily but no. you know that's not i don't think the intent to either <laughs> it's did not you, this is not being advertised to trump supporters in any way did you watch it and feel suddenly that he was fit to be president possibly uh uh no no it, it was never a question in my mind either going in or or at the end of it and i don't think it was a question of the documentary's mind either no. the deck is definitely stacked but it's interesting I thought it was interesting how they pulled a couple of uh, prior Trump associates like uh, George Conway and uh, Scaramucci in- into it here and-, and get some perspective from them who who both like kind of explain their their support of Trump initially, but also their like regret at the hands of it. But I, I did yell at the screen at one time when, when Conway was talking where he's like, yeah, I, su- I supported Trump because... I thought he'd get better over time. And it's like, oh, and he didn't. I'm like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> how, how did you not see the same thing, you know, that we all saw? And you're still, like, tacitly supporting him by, you know, like, you know, uh, with your wife, you know, working alongside him and spouting bullshit all the fucking time. <laughs> right. So, th- so that that part was kind of, like, infuriating. And then uh, Mooch, Mooch is just uh, a fucking asshole <laughs> in general. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and he's like this typical embodiment of, of a Wall Street dickhead. Uh, but at least I, I think he's aware of it anyway. He acknowledges that Trump is an asshole and people don't like that. But he's, but that makes it OK. So, like again, this is weird duality where they make these justifications for their support, but also, you know, recognize like by the end. Oh, yeah, he's actually dangerous and probably not fit to be president. <laughs> and it's like, fuck you guys. Right. <laughs> Yeah, but I did. It's not benefiting them. Yeah, certainly. I I did think it was interesting though. Like I I think the the documentary did a good job of like acknowledging the the statements that they're making, particularly from the particular doctors, and like going into the actual like 
processes of how you diagnose someone, how you you deal with that, why this kind of approach to recognizing it is, uh, you know, uh, appropriate without making like a direct, you know, like overarching statement and saying specifically they have like this thing or whatever. It's like, uh, I, I think the documentary deals with that in, in a very appropriate manner. I think the the structure of it is, uh, was, was nice uh, and it was backed up. There was points where it felt like they were like grasping at straws or using the medium to like connect <laughs> things together. Like there was, a, there was one point where uh, one of the, the, the doctors, uh, let's see here, uh, John Gartner, he was talking about like the, the Jane Goodall experience, you know, experiments with the chimpanzees and the mm. kind of tribal mentalities and stuff. And instead of like citing like actual evidence from the report and showing that on screen, it was literally just cut together footage of chimpanzees in, <laughs> in yeah. whatever ways they could to fit how he was talking. And I'm like, this doesn't mean anything. You're just using the image to, to try and reinforce artificially what he's saying here. This is, right. you know, the kind of cheap documentary filmmaking that's, uh, you know, not providing any actual evidence. It just appears to be. So there was a couple of points like that, but largely I felt like it did a good job of like using actual footage uh, of the actual you know events they're discussing to talk about them without like circumventing or cutting around or reframing things and you know i think any of us who have been paying attention for the past five ish years or whatever now you know know that and could make these judgments of our own case like i didn't learn anything myself watching it because i watched all of these things happen in real time and it was as horrifying then as it was now but with a lot of it in the rear view, uh, obviously not all of it, 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 it was easier to soak in. Like, I'm like, I can actually watch this now and not feel utterly miserable <laughs> because I know that we we succeeded in at least one aspect of it. And, and again, like another way that I think they, they make a good founded argument for the Nazi comparisons throughout by bringing in like actual historians and talking mm-hmm. about how it mirrors it in actual significant ways not just like the hitler comparison but like they bring in like the mussolini and the gaddafis and such and all the other uh dictatorial rulers in the you know the past uh centuries and such and i think it 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 makes a compelling argument for those cases it's not just like blatantly throwing that comparison around because you know there, there is a certain validity in that you know we would too loosely throw around the term nazis and such sure um you know, to, to kind of st- cause a stir. But in some cases, again, like this, it's it's justified when you see the evidence, you know, uh, explained like this. And, uh, but yeah, I, since uh, you watched it, did, did, did you have an opinion on the film? I had just read Mary J. Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough, right before it. So I already got oh, weeks before it a deep psychological reading of Donald Trump from a family member who has a lot of experience. So I, I mean, I was pretty worn out. It was around the election cycle and... Um, I just I couldn't do anything it, with yeah, that. It came out in August. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's totally fair. Again, it's it, I I didn't learn anything from it necessarily, and I, I don't think it's going to convince anyone. But no. uh, I thought it did a good job of, of affirming what I knew and presenting evidence at certain points. As a documentary, I thought it was well composed. It wasn't like amazing necessarily, but you know it was it was good. I've seen far worse documentaries, and for something that could be so like kind of exploitative and trashy uh i didn't think it came across that way and mm-hmm. uh you know so so i i enjoyed my experience watching it uh i, I don't know how valuable it will be in the future yeah i i don't know um like we said i think around when it came out maybe it's maybe we need a little bit of time uh when it when i saw it he was still in office i mean 
Yeah. You know, I, I don't think the full story was told because we had what happened this January, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about that. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, where, where it's talking about how the, the consequences of his actions can be truly horrifying and violent. If he keeps going down this path, you know, and, and really the end is kind of like a plea to remove him from office, which, uh, you know, there was like a genuine movement to actually do in the beginning of this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, talking about like inv- invoking the, the, you know, 25th Amendment and, uh, you know, uh, also, you know, the impeachment trial and such to actually, you know, remove him for the insurrection at the, the Capitol. And of course, that's not a facet of the documentary. But if you made it today, that would absolutely that'd be like the, the fucking centerpiece. Oh, yeah. I mean, you need that kind of poetic tragic ending of this figure uh going down how he always wanted to so uh in flames yeah so uh in in some ways i'm like the it came a little too soon and like it's please definitely i think would have fallen on deaf ears no matter what and it does feel like you know like i said a little bit like you're just trying to capitalize on the moment with it uh this this director uh dan partland uh hasn't done any other films as far as i can see yet this is like his first major documentary i'm looking at here yeah, yeah everything else is like tv episodes so i don't know seems a little bit like it's capitalized on the moment but it doesn't feel cheap in terms of how it's produced no. as a documentary i think it's it's, I think it's i think it's well made and again it you know it tries to deal with its its uh subject in a uh genuine manner uh but you know it's it, it worked for me uh it, it was something uh that, that kept my attention for its hour and a half or whatever sure uh just, just want to acknowledge this is not evidence of my obsession with Nazism and the alt right. This is, this is evidence of my, you know, position against it. Here, I'm, I'm agreeing yeah. that, that with the unfit messaging here. Just want to clarify that before we keep jumping on the bandwagon of, of David being obsessed with Nazis here. Please so remember it's, that we're it's the, not quite the same. We're the alternative to the right. We're not the alt right. Um, <laughs> coming to America. Is that, is that our new slogan for the website? Are, are we changing it to that? I hope it I don't is. Know, I, I still like the Northwest thing. Yeah. <laughs> or classic and contemporary cinema. I, th- I think we should stick with that. I think the alt-right thing is going to mix up our messaging here. Yeah. Uh, someone could get confused. Um, it would be as confusing as if you tweeted out, uh, women should stay in the kitchen. <laughs> On International Women's Day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, thanks, Burger King. Uh, there's uh, more on that on Twitter. Um, I'm sure a delightful conversation happening now. Uh there's as, as often as found on Twitter, <laughs> only delightful conversations. Uh, Eddie Murphy has been making a comeback tour the last few years. Um, he went away for like six years. He said in an interview with, I think it was IndieWire this week because he got the Razzie, you know, for one of his performances where he plays three or four characters. And uh, just one of those uh, 2000s comedies that were very prolific for a time. Um, and he kind of went away and his biggest success, of course, is like, the donkey and shrek right like uh it's, it's hard to like come back as a serious performer when your name's attached to this as your significant performance so i'm very grateful for dolomite and um craig brewer's return with the second eddie murphy movie um white director uh making a sequel to um the john landis movie uh coming to america Who, which who's is also the, white yeah um <laughs> trying to connect something there uh which is one of the early representations of black film where it really took off internationally. I think we had a lot of black films like in American markets that didn't quite make it overseas, but it was really one of our first that was like, a, okay, this is an international and a national hit. And there's something there. It became a cult comedy over the years. Um, 
there's a lot to like about uh, coming to America, Arsenio Hall and uh, Eddie Murphy really doing some of their best TV works or uh, movie work together. So. You said this is the, the same director as Dolomite? Yeah, yeah, Craig Burr. That's, that's uh, interesting. That's crazy because uh, I know Dolomite got quite quite a good amount of praise, uh, particularly from you as well. I loved it. And so to I... go from... Go, yeah, to go from that to uh, this kind of what I understand to be a very soulless sequel to a, a beloved comedy from the 1980s is uh, quite quite shocking. It has a little soul in it. <laughs> it has a, a Morgan Freeman vo- voiceover, if we want to call that soul. He introduces uh, the band In Vogue from, from the 80s uh, who, who arrive on stage with salt and pepper as their backup. So, you know, there's some 80s style there. Uh, what I like about it and what I think is funny is that it reroutes the conversation that this was the original um, black American film where a large black cat, largely black cast uh, really blew up and actually created something that lasted through the years. So uh, they're like, we were here before black Panther <laughs> and that's kind of their impetus for the sequel is they're going to like uh, surround it in black Panther rapping. Uh, when it starts, he's like uh, doing like a, a contest for the throne and, uh, then he has a son that he finds in America. Unfortunately, the rest of the movie is just playing the same jokes over, which I like these jokes, but I've heard them before. So uh, they're all a little bit muddled by now. Uh, Arsenio gets to come back as his character, which is fantastic. Um, I, we get to see some Tracy Morgan, who I always love and uh, who I kind of connect to emotionally because uh, he was like uh, hit by a car and went through his whole, own whole uh, coma like experience. So I always like Tracy Morgan and respect him a lot. Um, one of my favorites that were on 30 rock. <laughs> there's oh a, yeah. He's, he's fantastic on 30 rock. <laughs> it's like, 30 rock. It's like a good bit of comedy here, but it's all pretty mild and you've seen it all before. So no reason to watch it. I've received about 40 PR emails for this. They raised that, the, they're really pushing the, the PR. And again, another one that yeah. Amazon is kind of like shoving at my face uh, lately. Uh, but I will promptly ignore. Which is interesting because Paramount didn't want this movie, so it fell into Amazon's lap, and then they kind of took that as an advantageous situation to make this one of their big movies of this spring. Uh, so that's their thing. Um, I like, I do like the recentering of Zamunda uh, as Wakanda. I think that's hilarious and worth doing. Uh, otherwise, not much left in here. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be largely receiving a negative reception from... Uh fans and critics alike. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even that negative i think it's no i think it's just fine i i've watched a lot of shit comedies <laughs> so for me to like watch this middling one i could be like yeah that that's middling uh for anyone else i think it'd probably be a three you know like a, mm-hmm. well, i've seen the depths like, of despair <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering like for people who are huge fans of like the first movie not, yeah. not that you weren't but like like who are really enthusiastic like because i don't know you know we, we can see we're seeing a lot of these revivals lately uh like what we had like the third bill and ted movie last year right which also like middling but more positive a little bit of of that reception there uh people seem to at least like enjoy it as a kind of conclusion or whatever uh this this just seems very like unprompted i think first of all was anyone clamoring for a a second coming to america film (laughs) Uh, clamoring for the second coming um i would say uh (laughs) it's weird because you look back at coming uh, you look back at like coming to America and you think of John Landis. You're like, I don't know if I want to like this movie, but, but actually it's really well shot. John Landis could shoot a movie, whatever you think of him. 
Uh, it's a beautiful looking movie. I'd like yeah, to see the 4K uh, I, of it. There, there's definitely a lot to be said about John Landis, mostly yeah. bad, bad things. things. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but at the same time, you know, again, like with any complicated director personality, whatever, there's lots of good things I think to say as well, particularly about his films and the the his work in in the 80s and such. But also, I think his his interest as a as a you know film enthusiast as well. I think he has a, a lot of uh, highlights. I like John Landis as a personality in so many ways while also mm-hmm. like disgusted by his his actions as a as a person uh you know so it's it's a complicated thing i'm sure one day we'll get around to a film of his and then we'll we'll suss all that out uh yeah. but you know he's he's got some classics so hard to say animal house sucks though by the yeah. way <laughs> in case anyone's wondering if that holds up it doesn't <laughs> i'm afraid to revisit it uh, i don't need to though it's it's yeah, it's it's very uh, staunch and it's a uh, you know, you know misogyny. I'll say for one thing. Yeah, I, I think we could get around to American Werewolf or maybe Blues Brothers. Uh, those seem very yeah, likely well, we, for us. We, we keep talking about Blues Brothers, and that's like kind of undeniable. You can't you can't condemn yeah. John Landis entirely because then you got to throw Blues Brothers out, and we can't. Uh, society that. couldn't go on if we did that. <laughs> no, I hope. The, Sorry, I hope the takeaway here is that people continue or kind of complete this uh, reevaluation of coming to America. I think Eddie Murphy's long needed that uh, reevaluation. Uh, not to where he was the funniest guy, because at this point in his career, when Coming to America came out. Raw had just come out, which was the top grossing comedy special of all time. It's interesting. You look at like black comedians in that era, you go down the list of the top 10 grossing comedies, eight of them, eight or nine of them are all black comedians. Uh, There's been a huge, huge industry in this kind of comedy. And this came at just the right time when Raw came out, which is one of the funniest specials of all time. So I think we need to reevaluate and not be like uh, critical, not jobs on like these old comedies where, uh, maybe they do have a lot of value as movies too. And maybe we don't have to just like segment them as uh, these are just comedies that we enjoyed in their time. Like coming to America might just be a good movie. We could be okay with that. Probably. Is, I don't know. Uh, I've never actually seen coming to America. So uh, I, I don't have good. an opinion on that one. <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds like it's good. Yeah. It do- yeah. It doesn't sound like it's, it's a uh, amazing, but good better than yeah. animal house at least. And I'd really like to see folks go back and watch Dolomite at least. So uh, maybe maybe it'll at least inspire that and in coming to I'll America check, rewatch. I'll check that one out eventually. Once Netflix adds some of the old films it keeps insisting <laughs> on talking about, then maybe I'll I'll go back to it. Damn, uh, Dolomite could be a good show too at some point. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We we shall see about that. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you know what else is a good show? Your second documentary. Uh, yeah yeah oh. that, that would that'd be a good show <laughs> we got we got transitions for days over here yeah we do we're going really smooth this episode there's <laughs> there's nothing going wrong at my end at all with the film festival so don't worry about it you know you know what there there's there's good conversation between the awkwardness and that's all that matters i think people yeah. ride with us through the bumps to get to the you know to the, the smooth ride here and there's a good awkwardness between the conversations <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, all right. So the the original film, the original documentary that I intended to watch uh, this week to discuss was was actually pertinent to the film we're discussing, and that's oh, cool. uh, Peter Bogdanovich's uh, documentary directed by John Ford. Oh wow! Uh, Do you know about this documentary? I I don't really. I think it's on my watch list, possibly. 
So this was a uh, one that was made relatively early in his career, uh, after Targets, but kind of before he really blew up in the seventies. Uh, he he sat down with these uh, interviews with everyone uh, related to Ford, John Wayne, James Stewart, Henry Fonda, and uh, Ford himself. He got with these interviews. I think I've shared you this clip. This is the film from which the clip, like the, it's like a two minute clip of Bogdanovich trying to interview Ford and him just being the most cagiest fucking bastard he could. Like like he asked him. At one point, you know, he's like, oh, you know, this uh, your perception of the, the Western genre has changed a lot over the years. You know, if you compare uh, Wagon Master to the kind of more, you know, somber uh, man who shot Liberty Valance. Are you aware of this? He's like, no. Mr. Ford, I've noticed that the uh, that your view of the West has become increasingly sad and melancholy over the years. Uh, I'm comparing, for instance, Wagon Master to the man who shot Liberty Valance. Have you been aware of that change no. in mood? No. Now that I've pointed out, is there anything you'd like to say about it? I don't know what you're talking about. It's it's a it's a great bit. There's like, and he's just a, such a fucking asshole to, to interview, and it's very funny in in hindsight though i know for at the time like it was it was really crushing for bogdanovich <laughs> because he, he felt like he was really failing as an, yeah. an interviewer uh because forge just being this this utter dick to him <laughs> but it's it's very funny to to watch ford uh you know kind of in in the in the rear view like this uh the, the kind of aggravating and abusive personality that he had but anyway uh, so the the documentary itself was very insightful about his his films based on the you know the first hand accounts of the other people, not necessarily from Ford himself, though he does eventually get some information from him, and then going through his filmography and highlighting some of the the major uh, titles there and the progression of his career from like the silent era up until you know the late '60s when uh, he filmed this uh, documentary, but then. Uh, in the late 90s, uh, after showing a revival of it, uh, Bogdanovich found that he wasn't like completely satisfied with it. And so he went and inter interviewed some more contemporary uh, filmmakers as well and released it again in 2006 with a bit more uh, insight from people like Spielberg and Clint Eastwood and uh, Martin Scorsese. They all have talking heads in it as well now. So you watched uh, the new one? And Bog uh, yeah, that's the one that's available. I think the... Sure. Uh, the, the original is like only available in a print in like the Library of Congress or something like that somewhere. Uh, maybe it's like at the UCLA archives instead. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that's the one I own on a, a DVD. And uh, the, the insight you get from these filmmakers and then having their, you know, Ford's influence on them and talking about it, you know, how that spread as well as, in you know, in integrated with the interviews of the likes of people who work with him like Wayne and Stewart and Fonda and the anecdotes they give uh it's a it's a terrific insight to the to the filmmaker and a great showcase of his uh filmography and the the evolution of his work particularly because Bogdanovich is such a student of him as well and is very aware of all this so the connections he was able to bring together as well as the, his own insight he provides as a director on the material I think it's one of the best uh documentaries I've seen that uh kind of digs into the filmography of a director it doesn't feel like just an overview it feels really like a genuine mm -hmm. portrait He's a fantastic interviewer and very fun to listen to <laughs> when interviewing. I've learned a lot about how to interview. I, I'll never be half as good as Bogdanovich, but mm -hmm. he's so smooth. 
So it's funny to see even him being disarmed by Ford, I think, because I look at Bogdanovich as like the, the ideal of how to interview a, a celebrity or a, a director. Absolutely. You know, that's and that's one of the things uh, I think we'll remember him best for, perhaps even more than his work as a an actual filmmaker, though, of course, those are uh, brilliant works uh, on their own right. But his uh, his work as a film historian and uh, interviewer and, uh, uh, you know, uh, documentarian, you know, in particular, uh, there, there's a number of his documentaries that I've really liked. I think I've talked about the, the Tom Petty series before mm-hmm. here, the four hour documentary. He did his most recent film was a documentary on uh, Buster Keaton, which was uh, pretty great, aside from a couple of things that i didn't like <laughs> i'd like to see some of these yeah you should uh the the great buster is the name of the the, the buster keaton one uh which was released by cohen media uh i would definitely recommend checking that one out for anyone who's a buster keaton fan it's a pretty great one uh, should we but, take a break come back there our Ford yeah, talk? yeah absolutely we'll uh transition more into ford talk uh now that i've introduced him properly with this documentary uh in just a moment I do recommend checking out the John Ford documentary if you're interested, though. Some great. Yeah, I'm really interested. <laughs> not, not just interviews with, with Ford, which, again, is like famous in its own right. for, its, its, But, uh, you know, the interviews he does with uh, Jimmy Stewart and such. Jimmy Stewart tells like a story of how uh, he how, how Ford targeted him on the set of like Liberty Valance and made him the butt of the joke, as, as he would often do with like all the cast members, particularly Wayne getting like. <laughs> just absolutely abused on, on the set of every film and, and how he would always pick a person on the, the crew to just treat like utter shit for some reason. <laughs> I can't exactly like, like figure out why still despite everything, like just demoralizing a single person. I don't know, maybe to maintain like tension on the set. You see it with like hockey coaches. Sometimes they'll kind of like demoralize like the leader of the team. So they see if they actually fall into that position. Maybe it's like a leadership technique that's a it, real old school. I think I think it's an important thing to recognize here as well that as much as we like to romanticize the uh, directing style of Ford, uh, it's it's really awful and abusive and that shit would not fly today. And he only got away with it because he was such a respected director and yeah. he, he was able to exude a lot of appreciation for his actors at aside from that even even the people he did sometimes the people he abused at great lengths like he was best buddies with john wayne you know like throughout their whole career uh you know so he obviously had a great admiration for uh you know papa ford as, as they would call him but uh yeah that that shit would definitely not fly today and and we would look very negatively on ford for for his actions uh so even though i can't help but find it entertaining and yeah. be entirely charmed by his absolutely horrendous behavior uh it's it's important to recognize how uh n- negative I, I think it should be considered still overall it's, it's a weird thing again like it's, it's it's hard not to get wrapped up in the the romanticization of it uh because it seems to be tied into his mythos in general <laughs> if he made films like 
this today after long years of accusations about like racial prejudice we call it like an apology tour right like um it wouldn't feel earnest today um I will say when it comes through on the screen, like when you see some of that aspects of his personality, like I think, for instance, in uh, The Quiet Man is a, is a great example, which is like the whole plot is about John Wayne needing to assert his masculine dominance over Maureen O'Hara. And there's literally like, and like she's mad at him for not being an abusive asshole <laughs> for most of the film until he finally like literally drags her away, kicking and screaming uh while the whole town cheers him on and and to me that's that's fucking disgusting and awful to see on screen but people love the quiet man still like like it's it's one of his only films that's greatly lauded that i don't like because that comes through on screen so i don't know i i i have this weird hypocritical you know appreciation of of that aspect of him that i can't exactly reconcile but i'm I'm trying to at least get it out here in some words on the the podcast now when uh this film sergeant rutledge came out it was around the time of uh to kill a mockingbird so like a, a something in the air obviously the culture uh coming around like the civil rights conversation and uh, some of the books and literature and films coming out were kind of connecting in some really interesting ways yeah so i i think it's this is, this is definitely right in that sweet spot like just a bit before things really kind of ramped up with that uh it came out a year before to kill a mockingbird was published two years before the film uh two years after the defiant ones which was the sydney poitier film with the uh, tony curtis that kind of dealt with uh, racial themes one of the first kind of big noteworthy hollywood films to really deal with that and uh ford's film here sergeant rutledge is definitely the first western to kind of uh, showcase them and you know taking a star and i know the studio wanted like Sidney poitier or like harry belafonte to yeah. play the role but ford was was certain that he wanted uh woody strode in it who had uh like kind of minimal work in hollywood prior to then he was well, did uh, he say that they weren't tough enough for this role <laughs> yeah yeah something like that and uh he really uh, Ford really admired Strode because he was previously a, f- a football star for uh, mm-hmm. you know UCLA. He played you know like the, and then also in uh, the NFL for a short period of time. He also did some uh, professional wrestling. Uh, so he was a big sports star. Yeah, I guess he played for uh, the was, Rams, Calgary, the defunct Calgary team, uh, some other teams in the in the National Football League. What it was then, at least. He was actually a uh, w- one of the athletes photographed by uh, Lenny Riefenstahl. Oh really? The, uh, the Olympics, yeah. Which is uh, crazy. She was she flew over to Los Angeles and, and took uh, photos of him and such. Uh, so that's you know a whole interesting aspect as well of his uh, career that doesn't get a whole lot touched on. But you know, as as film historians, we we tend to remember this aspect of of his filmography more specifically his his time with Ford and his transition into becoming a Western star, and then a lot of the Italian films he made uh, because of it. But this is really what, what kind of kicks it off for him. Prior to this, he was in like Tarzan movies and such and playing like, you know, African tribesmen and stuff. And he had like a uh, noteworthy part in Cecil B. DeMille's uh, The Ten Commandments. But aside from that, like nothing really until he, he started getting work with Ford here. And Ford really allowed him to launch himself with this very prominent uh, starring role, t- title role even at that. Uh, I think he does technically below the likes of like Jeffrey Hunter and such because he gets more screen time just by nature of the court trial, you know, set up. But this really is Woody Strode's movie through and through. I watched um, the 
what was it called? Like the Black Rodeo movie that was on the Criterion. They did their package of the Black Cowboy films uh, this last week. And there was the one on the Black Rodeo where Woody Strode has a really interesting interview that's like the centerpiece of the film. And he talks about how we've perceived him in these roles um, and how we perceive like the Black Cowboys. And he talks like how he wasn't just this guy and this football player, but also at UCLA, he studied history very closely and became an expert himself on uh, the history of the Black Cowboys. And that's one of his biggest passions is making sure that's directly put on screen and that he's able to kind of convey this whole forgotten and whitewashed history. So I thought that was really important coming into this to just get like a layer of that. Yeah. And, and that's definitely a huge thing. Like what I think like 25% of all Cowboys or, or something like that were, uh, were black men. They were, you know, uh, especially because a lot of the, that's where a lot of the, the ex-slaves went after emancipation, you know, they moved westward yeah. where there was actual land for them to, you know, w- work within. There was, you know, territory in which they could exist uh, and, and operate in and, and work. And yeah. so that's, you know, and, and it's, it is a huge whitewash part of history. It thinks a lot to the, the likes of films by like John Ford and such, but it's nice to see, uh, particularly in the, in the 60s here, he was kind of, he was working on revising his history with films like this and then The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, you know, not soon after, and then uh, Cheyenne Autumn, which was the last Western he made. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like this big, bloated apology to the native <laughs> americans like kind of like yeah. as a redemption piece it's it's bad it's not good but uh, it's it's kind of in the same vein here but uh unlike that both this uh sergeant rutledge and man who shot liberty valance are fantastic films from ford at the very late stage of his career these are some of the last few films he made and it shows that he had this evolving perspective i think that you know uh he was able to incorporate into his uh vision of the west as he kind of brought it to a close I liked one thing that Strode said in that documentary. Everywhere there was a white man discovering something, somebody black was standing around someplace. I mean, that just seems so true that significantly, like you say, there was a a very large portion of black soldiers. And this is about like the Ninth Cavalry, which uh, famously, I think, uh, helped with like uh, getting Geronimo and like saving like that whole uh, division. And they like patrolled uh, part of Texas and uh, we're called like the Buffalo Soldiers based on what the, the natives, you know, they revered them as soldiers like they revered the Buffalo. So um, it, it is interesting to get like this framing that we we really never saw before this. Right. Well, because it's interesting to consider like how how the, the West is kind of just like glossed over that fact because really when you think about it even just logistically like what happened uh, what happened to all the black soldiers that you trained in such after you know the civil war now that everyone's free and needs actual jobs you know it it only makes sense for a lot of them to go into the the work that they're doing there particularly staying in the the cavalry like that since you had all the indian wars uh after just after the civil war it really was like you know you moved from one to the next i guess the hard part of that is that they go into the service because they're extremely discriminated by their government so uh, for their government they then have to go and discriminate against the natives and they're kind of doing the thing for the people that discriminate against them that they're you know why they're doing it It, it's a it's a whole vicious circle and that's how we call our you know racism very cyclical and it is systemic and in very big ways i i think that's like born in this nature of our founding of these territories Mm -hmm. and the way in which the film deals with racism and and prejudice i think is uh well well perhaps not as uh critical and uh, insightful for a modern audience today 
is uh, particularly uh, surprising for a film from 1960. You know, we're still seven years off from Poitiers making In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, mm-hmm. you know, so to, to deal with that aspect of it. And again, you know, two years away from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And so to have a film that's literally about a, a black man being on trial for the the accused rape and murder of a white woman like that's literally the premise of to kill a mockingbird and and ford's doing it beforehand this was a story that was written for the screen as well which got turned into a novel before uh you know being filmed but this was intended as a ford film from the beginning so to see uh him uh take that that concept and kind of uh blaze the trail for it ahead of the likes of harper lee you know is it's pretty fantastic I mean, yeah, you feel there's a lot in the air in the culture at this moment and things are changing in these uh, trials are going a different way than they historically have, like in the US. And you could kind of feel that pressure mounting that we need to be more socially conscious of that and looking at how black bodies are making people in history uncomfortable and how we react to that pressure. Well, it's just interesting to see someone like Ford in particular be be able to tap into the social conscious of the day, you know, uh, about as as classic and you know as as white I, I guess you could say a director as you know you you can consider and think he is basically the er American director <laughs> and so for for him to be able to function successfully in the sixties with socially you know relevant material like this I think is particularly fantastic I think not only is Sergeant Rutledge a good reflection on the evolution of the Western genre at the time how it's moving into a revisionist period and one that's more reflective of the mythos and you know kind of coloring out the the spots that were uh, previously you know whitewashed uh and not only that it's also you know discussing you know pertinent themes to the time to the 1960s uh and even up until today i think the the themes of uh prejudice in sergeant rutledge resonate still i went back and read newspaper reviews from around the time it came out uh, some of them are linked on like rotten tomatoes so you could go to like newspaper clippings and look through uh historical records uh, and they were saying uh finally the film that will solve the hollywood race problem and will get us over <laughs> this burden i'm like oh my god what did i just watch the last year <laughs> ouch <laughs> yeah it, it hurt me inside um of course a lot of uh really foul language in these old newspaper clippings along with their promise that this would solve the racism so uh, a lot of mixed messaging in in that old uh, i looked through about five of them uh, just a lot of mixed signals there um mm-hmm. and I, you could tell it is moving in the right direction, though. It is moving Hollywood towards something important as the first like major Western with a black star. That, right. That is not to say that the film necessarily made a nominal impact at the time. It was not To Kill a Mockingbird. It wasn't uh, successful, it right? Of, yeah. It, it didn't make a whole yeah. lot of money. It, it, it didn't generate much uh, publicity or anything like that. But from a historical standpoint, I think it's really important to to acknowledge and again to see how it largely holds up even within you know ford's oeuvre uh today looking back i think it's one of those kind of you know buried gems that a lot of people don't know about uh and and i just happened to come across myself i went and sought it out some years ago because i love woody strode i you know he's always made an impact in the small supporting roles i've seen him in be it in spartacus or man who shot liberty valance or even just a tiny tiny cameo in uh beginning of once upon a time in the west i've always loved him and so i'm like oh he has a starring <laughs> role in this john ford movie i have to see that and how so couldn't i accept to do the episode when you said that i, yeah. I had to watch this woody strode movie. i i believe i told you about this film a couple of years ago because i know you you've mm-hmm. always been interested by the notion of black cowboys in particular i'm like watch this one it's really good it's john ford and you know uh 
And so, but so when it finally came around, a Criterion channel just easily accessible. It was like the same thing with like Red Sun, where I had the same sentiment. I'm like, oh my god, here's this unheard of <laughs> Western that's come around to stream. Calvin, can we please talk about it? <laughs> and I'll always say yes, basically to any Western, but especially one that has like social value and is like relevant to like my mixed interest in Westerns, whether it's like a weird spaghettified Western or or one that has a lot of social consciousness. Even if it's a courtroom drama. <laughs> okay, so like the courtroom thing doesn't <laughs> totally bother me here. Like the whole construct of it isn't a huge problem for me because it's used as a framing device for these flashbacks, but also mm-hmm. it's used to exemplify Woody Strode, like like the towering nature of him next to everyone else. Uh, in their stillness, you look at him and you still feel movement and power and a lot of endurance and strength. Um, one, one of the interesting things in the film is that there's a lot more close-ups in this film than usually you find in a John Ford film. He's really mm-hmm. like, you know, reluctant to use them. But those, some of those ones, like particularly of, of Woody Strode in the courtroom where he just has this this staunch look, this stoned face there as he's, you know, uh, being sit on, on, on trial and it's just fixed close-up. I think that's a really powerful image that Ford keeps coming back to in the film. The only thing that made me mad was every woman except the, the one that's a witness <laughs> here is that is a blithering idiot. I mean, they're, they're horrible. <laughs> they're banning themselves as the details of the murder come out. Like they're just sensationalized. And that's the that's the kind uh, of cornball comedy that's very much in John Ford style. You know, I, like watching that, I'm like, oh yeah, that's definitely line with like the wedding sequence in like The Searchers, where it's just this, this over the top kind of ridiculous thing. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I like it. Uh, I like Ford's humor. It kind of works for me, you know, and how it juxtaposes things. And it's largely contained in this I'm, film. I'm glad it's just that in this. Because <laughs> I, I think any more of his, like, oddball humor in this would be really uncomfortable for me. I, yeah, I, I definitely understand when people don't like the humor <laughs> in Ford films. Because it is, like, just totally inverse to oh, yeah. whatever else is going on. I think it's funny. I just think it's fucked up, too. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, one of the things, at least for me, like why I think the courtroom stuff is a little uh, more more of a issue with the film is just because like structurally it like it interrupts like the the interest of the story a lot. We keep coming back and having to deal with this stuff, and then, and again because you have to interrupt it with a lot of this comedy stuff because it's not necessarily just the women. Sometimes it's just like oh, yeah. dealing with uh you know the 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 judge there uh, the colonel uh, who's played by somebody <laughs> played by somebody i love the bit where they go into the room Willis and they Bucci. i love the bit where they go into the room and play cards and how quickly that all appears you know like it looks like they've done it a million times because the cards that's, are sorted real fast and they're already playing a quick round that's that reminds me there's a scene in william wyler's uh the westerner which is uh kind of based on uh the famous texas judge uh roy bean where we're literally like all right the you know the jury's going into you know deliberate or whatever so he you know he uh you know bangs his gavel and they go into the back of the bar where he's holding court and they just have a poker game set up and they they don't even like actually deliberate they're just playing a game of poker and it definitely reminds me of that so it's like it's a trope i think that pops up in a couple of westerns and it's a humorous little bit and i think it works i I just love how quickly the game appears and how fast the the movement is rather than deliberation (laughs) they just go through and make the bet on it and that tells you about their characters even more Mm -hmm. um other big moments um the bit where they they bring in the captain buffalo song and they're like solemnly singing it because that he's like their hero of this black troop uh, really gutted me, but also really moved me as it slowly pans over him, like turning away from the camera and 
Uh, really gorgeous shots. It pops up, I believe, three times in the film. It's in mm-hmm. the opening credits, at the end credits, and then at the one point there. And I think it's one of the better uh, Western theme songs. Uh, at yeah. least it, I, I find it's it's fun and catchy. Uh, and and the fact that you incorporate it in with like significance is kind of like a battle hymn uh, within the story. I think is good, and it gives you a chance for like Jeffrey Hunter to explain what a, a Buffalo Soldier is, you know, so that the the song makes a bit more sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the lyrics are also just fun. What it just John feels Henry so good was a weakling. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and and the guy could take on uh, ox, and he's as big as a mountain. I like that kind of like Western myth that myth mythologizing about a character too. But um, it also just feels so good in the end when they're singing it for him, and and you feel how impassioned they really are to feel that representation. And if, if there was ever anyone to embody the spirit of that song, I think oh, yeah. Woody Strode is definitely the the man. He's such a, an enigmatic force in the film. Uh, I think, as you said to me, like uh, off off uh, off show off here, mic, is yeah. that like he doesn't? Yeah, he doesn't have to even say anything, and that's always been part of his allure is that he has this eminent screen presence that that just exudes from uh, every moment he's there it's why he's always stands out in a supporting role in any film and why he makes such a impact and so when he gets to have like actual material to work with here and be uh, a star uh it's just incredible you know he's he's such a magnetic force Mm-hmm. Um, very powerful. There's the one very emotional scene where he does kind of break and show a lot of emotion that that really killed me. The uh, because he's so stoic and so powerful and such a force of like, like the song says, he's like a mountain or like a giant tree. Like he's just so sturdy and upright, and you could tell that he's like a giant football player, right? Like he he towers over these other guys. So then when he breaks, I I just broke down. I was like, oh shit. <laughs> uh, it, that was a hard moment in the movie for me, but really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and he really does is able to give that emotionally resonant performance, but also just his physicality. I think he really uh, embodies this this kind of character, uh, you know, with with great dignity. Uh, and, and I think a lot of what the film does is it kind of uh, you know highlights the way in which Ford was uh, generous to uh, you know accentuating you know these these more uh, minority character stuff. I know he gets a lot of flack for like like there's a constant question in in terms of ford in terms of is he or isn't he a, a racist right uh and in terms of at least in the depiction of his films i think a lot of that comes down to the the maybe lack of humanity or lack of nuance he depicts native americans with uh you know i don't think it's a question of off screen if not because there's a whole history of how well right. he treated the uh, the Navajos, you know, in there and, and how he constantly employed them and gave them representation on screen. And I think, you know, his usage of Woody Strode in, in these films and the other black actors within the film, I think, is another highlight of that in general. And he but works even in as, the like, past, right? Like he works in a very racist past, so it's hard to really right, differentiate. But- Oh, even so, like, I think there's a, only a few instances where he's really outwardly demonizing the the Native Americans in the films. Often they're just like a a nebulous uh, antagonistic force, which, you know, they, they were, you know, historically. Like, if you're going to tell this story from the, you know, perspective of the, the Americans, then, yeah, of course, they're going to be the the uh, the enemy or, or however you want to frame it like right. that. Uh, but, you know, I don't think he portrays them necessarily with an inherent savagery that is not historically present, in, in, except in the case of like, uh, you know, I think the search is the most prominent example where we're actually mm-hmm. like equating them with any kind of like savagery. But in that case, the the Comanche, you know, it's, it's a bit more 
founded historically and they and they you know he, he makes the nuance between tribes and, and other aspects uh i did but, i did worry when he picked up the the ch jacket off the apache what they were trying to do and if they were going to frame it in a way that made it seem like that was the the rapist right like mm-hmm. uh, but then it does a good job of uh differentiating that and has the surprise ending which i was i was really taken with that idea that he would do something different than where i thought it was going racially mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I think the film uh resolves its story uh quite well i think it is uh an interesting one uh narratively even if it's not necessarily what i'm there for the film always uh mm. i didn't remember a whole lot from it. this is only the second time i've i've watched it because it is harder to track down but uh you know it it was always like woody strode that made the the impact to me and the way forward frames things of course the 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 beautiful vistas and battle sequences seen in monument valley they're always a highlight even this late in his career he's making you know fantastic usage of of the uh the 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 landscape and such it does a good job to go in between court and that and i think as you as you also said off mic or in your review or something that they they do have a framing device for the first two cutaways and uh, then it kind of drops that that's yeah that's the kind of weird thing is um you you have like like in the first interview or whatever they do they he's like doing this big theatrical thing where he brings the lights down and you know it's it's almost like citizen kane in a way where you oh, yeah. got that that kind of transitionary aspect but then like in subsequent ones it's literally just a blunt cut back to the action <laughs> and i'm like okay <laughs> i just guess he decided it wasn't worth doing anymore <laughs> It's very strange just to drop that when you make such a strong uh, cinematography statement earlier on. Yeah. So it becomes an expectation. I didn't think about it until I read your piece on that. Yeah, but. it was, it was very, like it was, it was very obvious to me because I made such a note of it because it was such a dramatic movement to it bring is. the lights down and stuff. I'm like, oh okay. And then later, I'm like, do we just forget to Never do that again? again? <laughs> We're too far into the story. It's just going now. Um, I also made note of a, some of the side characters, which I thought it was just going to be like a, a Woody Strobe movie. But for me, Juano uh, Hernandez and his big beard tell the, a big story themselves, that really cool side character that did a lot for me. Yeah, I, I think Ford, again, has a has a knack for that of highlighting supporting characters and bringing out, you know, really great uh, performances from even just bit players. Yeah. Um, yeah, our, our judge and... Um, our defender really good uh, and you get his relation to Strode like on the battlefield and that kind of plays through in the court in an interesting way you feel the camaraderie there mm-hmm. and uh this this actually got to kick off a, a very important friendship for Strode with uh John Ford not only in their films together but like in a, on a personal relationship uh throughout the kind of last years of Ford life he was actually there uh for like the past, the last couple months uh when Ford was was dying and uh, stayed with him until his, his final breath, which was, uh, you know, I, I found out that about reading in his autobiography uh, called Gold Dust, um, which is very, very great portrait, I think, of his entire career and uh, life and uh, all of his struggles and perspectives. I think it's a, a, hmm. a, a vital uh, reading that I had and, and gave me an even greater appreciation for him. Yeah, I, I really like the movie. I mean, I wouldn't say it's one of the best Westerns or anything that we've covered, but I, I think it's, it's a, it's a unique one. one. Yeah, it's, it's significant. I think it is very Fordian. Uh, I think it's it's not his best work. Certainly, it's, it's got its, its slip ups. And uh, I think, you know, some aspects like, you know, the framing devices, you know, it's, 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 I wouldn't say again, like the strongest, but I think it is a stronger one of his when a man makes almost 150 films. Yeah, of course, there's going to be some that 
are are not nearly as good and stuff right. that you just made for the you know the money or whatever but this one definitely feels like it has motivation and artistic intent behind it which is something ford always tried to deny but i think it's very uh you know prevalent here and he really worked to bring out um that thematic aspect of the the story and i think it stands as one of the better films like there's a lot of those uh city poitier films that i mentioned that i think don't hold up because they are just intentionally sensationalizing of their their subject matter and i don't feel a sincerity behind them uh, necessarily particularly the stanley kramer ones i think are not good i don't think he's a good director <laughs> uh, except for like judgment at nuremberg that's a good movie but yeah in terms of dealing with uh, the racial themes i think this one holds up uh, a lot better than a lot of those other films well we got about an hour here i think uh, i think i'm about good um I'm yeah, Seven I'm satisfied. Rutledge. I'm I have to say again, I'm I'm very glad that you allowed us to talk about this one that you finally came and saw it. Well, despite the court of it all, I think we got some really interesting conversations about race and cowboys and uh, just a whole just, history we haven't covered yet. I'm just happy to highlight a film that I think is is underseen, underrepresented in a filmography. Or again, even like it's not about you know telling you that this is the greatest film or like you know nobody knows how good this is or, or anything like because <laughs> really it is it is more of a kind of uh, middle uh, film in in Ford's career. But it's I think it's got greatness in it that is often overlooked just because it's not as recognized, not as known. It's not like we're going to cover Tombstone or something. So. <laughs> Yeah. We, we have well, to go in more interesting and, directions than that and ultimately i just want a, a great platform to talk about woody strode because i think he, he is such a, a fantastic uh screen presence and actor and th this was really his big shining moment really beautiful performance i mean watch it for him if nothing else i think there's a lot else to recommend it on Definitely, but he certainly makes his uh, impact. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kemp and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast with Pavlos and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Beep.